This is episode 17 with Rebecca Gina, creator of the Barefoot Mommy blog. And today we're talking about social justice 101 for parents, how to raise socially conscious kids. One of the things is that we can do sometimes is think we'll just we'll just keep putting out these conversations and then we can have them when kids are older. But if we've presented the world as this fair place where everyone is treated equally, then it comes to kids as a real shock. Hey moms, are you tired of being tired? Or maybe yelling at your kids? Or maybe you need to know how to get your strength back postpartum? Or learn to manage your stress trying to do it all? or just to become a more confident mom? If so, then welcome to Citrus Love, keeping motherhood inspired. I'm Christiane Bégin, a mother of two, sharing inspiring conversations with wonderful people on how we can be mentally and physically stronger moms, and also including freshly squeezed ideas, a little bit of fun, so you can learn how to find balance, and also how to raise strong, caring, confident kids in today's world. So if you're ready, let's get started. Welcome, welcome back to another episode of Citrus Love Podcast. Today, we are talking about social justice because we hear so many things going on in the world, so many crazy things happening, as well as beautiful things. But as a parent, we often worry about how are we going to raise our kids in a society where there are still inequalities in many different uh, fields, people being disrespectful, or you hear about some movements happening to raise awareness for certain issues. It can vary from sexism, racism, immigration laws, gender gap, homelessness, and a lot of different things. How can we talk to our kids about these issues? When should we talk about it? Why should we talk about it? So who is Rebecca Gina? So she is the creator of the Barefoot Mommy blog, and she focuses on raising global citizens and bringing more awareness to younger kids about various social issues. Educators are often one of the top people going to her blog and other parents being a mother herself. She used to be very active in her community. Her goal is to educate parents on how to raise kids with the mission of diversity, inclusion and justice. She is a minister, religious educator of children and an activist. She released her new ebook, Raising Anti-Racist Kids, an age by age guide for parents of white children, which you can purchase on her website. She holds children's peace camp on a variety of justice issues such as race, homophobia, poverty, immigration, human rights. I mean, everything you can think of and that you probably hear on the news. If you're not targeted directly, um, maybe you might think, oh, I'm not ready to talk about this. But eventually they will be adult. And although I understand this is usually not one of the most listened to episodes, those are usually the episodes that need to be heard and shared even more because the impact is so deep. And it's helping kids be aware. And when they're aware, they can change their thought, their action, 
and their behavior. And this has an incredible impact. This is quite new for myself. We are including a bonus as a PDF file with this episode, and it will also be on the website, citruslove.com. Go check out this specific episode 17. You'll have the downloadable PDF file. Rebecca has kindly sent me four specific activities to get you started to make it more fun. She gives tons of examples, very specific using her own life and her son as an example. So this will make it clearer for you to understand what is going on, what can happen and how we can make these tiny changes to make the world better. Isn't that at the end of the day what we all want? World peace like in those pageant you see on TV. Anyways, okay, I'm talking too much now. So without further ado, let's listen in to our conversation. So welcome, Rebecca Gina, to Citrus Love Podcast. I'm very excited for this conversation, social justice and social equity, human rights, all those discussion, racism, sexism today. So we can dive deep into this topic on how parents can feel more comfortable discussing these topics. Before we start talking about you, how you got into this and about different uh, social justice topic, I want to mention something that you wrote about. So you said, if we want our children to act with justice, we must treat them with justice ourselves. You also linked it to, we have to be mindful of the the amount of power we have on our kids as parents. Yeah. So I think so many um, justice issues really to get to the heart of them, it's about power and privilege. And in that way, and need to be conscious of that. But the person who really kind of brought this home for me is uh, an author named Cindy Wong Brandt. Um, she has a book called Parenting Forward. And she came out of a very strict fundamentalist uh, Christian background and is really interested in raising her child in a very, in her children in a very different way. And so um, she introduced me to this idea of childism, that the way we treat children and forcing them to do certain things, kind of using our power over them is is an additional form of oppression, just like racism and sexism, homophobia, those kinds of things. So in a way, it makes, I think, parenting for justice a little harder because <laughs> there's even more to think about. But in other ways, I think it makes it more coherent because I'm trying to do the same thing, whether I'm trying to explain racism to my white child or I'm trying to treat him in a way that values um, his autonomy that respects him just like I want him to respect others and and respect their autonomy. Mm -hmm. And do you feel like based on your experience and what you've heard from parents or seen that we are not conscious of that idea because we think we're older, we're wiser, we know what is right and, and wrong, and we tend to overpower our child's way of thinking and seeing the world? Yeah, I I mean, I think, and I want to make clear, I'm not talking about just letting our kids do whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> they want. Yes. That's not that's not what this about is about. Boundaries and routines and rules are important. But so much of parenting involves strong emotions. You know, our children's strong emotions, our emotions that get um, triggered by the by our children's strong emotions. I just think that can lead us to to forget that 
you know, our children don't have a lot of things that they get to decide themselves. We tell them usually like what they're going to eat, often what they're going to wear. They don't have a choice about, you know, going to school or childcare. There's so few things that are within their decision-making power. And so anytime that we can help make it possible for our, to have discussions and decisions together with our children, I think that's a good thing. Mm. Take us back to, we'll talk a bit about you and how you got into this social justice and activism. What was the initial reason that kickstarted your passion for all of this? So I realized, gosh, probably even in high school that I was really drawn to, I had a really strong sense of fairness. I originally thought I was going to become a teacher. My mom is a teacher and taught in low-income majority black schools in, in our city in Memphis where we live when I was growing up. And so just kind of hanging out at her school and talking with her about things, I think, awakened my sense of justice. I changed my major in college. I decided to go on to seminary to become a minister. But what I really wanted to do was faith-based community organizing. And so that's what I did for about 10 years after I was ordained. And I really loved working on economic justice issues, living wage campaigns, workers' rights, those kind of things, which overlaps quite a bit with racial justice as well. Then I had a baby and <laughs> suddenly you know, the life of an activist is not always very emotionally and mentally healthy. There's a lot of burnout. There's a lot of focusing solely on work because you know it's work that's never finished. So you can feel like you're letting people down if you take a pause and take a rest. And that really just didn't fit with motherhood. So for me, <laughs> there's people who make it work and I admire them so much, but I just didn't feel like I could. So I left mm -hmm. my job. And when my son, I would say from like when he was an infant through about age three, I just really um, withdrew completely from that world um, other than like donating money to causes that we cared mm -hmm. about. That was about mm -hmm. the extent of it, maybe sending a few like signing some email petitions, but I just didn't have the headspace at the time to engage mm. with that. Mm -hmm. um, and then as my son started to get just a little bit older and some of the conversations that we were starting to have often through children's books, if you look at my blog, I would say probably like 50% of it is children's Yes, books. yes. <laughs> I believe so much in the power of stories for kids and to shape their worldview. Um, so we were starting to have some interesting conversations. I was starting to see some some biases showing up with him that really concerned me, both things that he said that I, I suspected reflected just absorbing racist stereotypes and also some sexist ones. So that was kind of the pressure from one end. And then from the other end, you know, I'm, I'm in the United States, Donald Trump was elected, and it was just any time I went on social media or watched the news, it was the amount of social injustice, the amount of like openly anti-immigrant, racist, homophobic rhetoric that was happening was just really overwhelming to me. And I felt like I needed to find some way to engage in activism, but I knew it needed to involve my family because I, d I only had so much time and mm -hmm. because this was something really important that I wanted to share with my child. It was such an important part of 
how I understand the world. Mm -hmm. And so through my writing, I started shifting more to social justice with kids. I started trying more things with him. I eventually started doing some religious education work with kids in churches, and that was around social justice. And so yeah, it was, it was really kind of a, a path of trying to live out my values with my child and then realizing that there weren't a lot of resources out there for parents who wanted to do that. There's a lot of stuff about social justice and activism, but mm-hmm. not much of it addresses like, how do you do this with kids? It's yes. tricky to figure out how much is too much to say. When should you start? What can you do? That's kind of where my what my journey is rooted in. So during that time, when you started your blog, The Barefoot Mommy, How was the feedback from parents or from educators? Who were your readers? Yeah, so I had started the blog already, although it was much more of kind of a general parenting blog with kind of an emphasis on diverse children's books. So as I gradually started like moving the blog in that direction, I found that I was attracting a lot of parents, which I expected. Um, I was a little surprised. I didn't realize that there would be so many teachers that would also come along. And some of those are people teaching in like preschools and K through 12 schools. And some are ones that are working in congregations. But for the most part, it's been positive because people will say things like, I was looking for something like this resource that you created because I I knew it was important to do this, but I didn't know how. The strongest pushback has probably been around some of my work around racism because there are adults that believe very strongly that we should teach kids to be colorblind and that talking to kids about race in any way is racist and that Mm -hmm. not talking to them will make racism go away. And um, Mm -hmm. my response to that is, you know, as a white person is if not talking about race made racism go away, I mean, we would we would have no racism because white people generally hate talking about race, whether it's to other adults or to kids. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, but for the most part, it's been a positive response. I want to touch on something you said. So you said when your son was young, he mentioned some things that were racism or sexism. Which environment was he in that might have given him these these words, these thoughts? Yeah, so I think, I mean, there's there's one incident I can think of where it was about a specific classic book that his school, which in general was great around like anti-bias work, but they were reading Peter Pan. And if you haven't looked at Peter Pan in a long time, which I hadn't like it's 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 terrible in terms of um Native American stereotypes it's Mm. it's a book that like is on my big no-no list now and so he had heard um a slur that I'm not gonna repeat I'm sure it's a word people know but it's sort of like the n-word and so I knew in that instance where where specifically it came from and so I had a conversation with him and then talked with his teacher as well but most of the time I think these things are a lot more subtle than we realize and we forget that kids are sponges and they just absorb really Mm -hmm. subtle stuff. So I noticed around the age of four, so we live in a majority black city and I noticed a couple of times that my son seemed really uncomfortable around black men or seemed like he was like afraid of them. And I don't think this was anyone ever saying something directly to him. I think uh, he didn't have a lot of encounters with black men. We live, our city's really segregated and our neighborhood is mostly white. You know, we've had the news on in the background sometimes and our local news is it's crime reporting and things like that could mm-hmm. could lead to a lot of stereotypes. So I, th- I think a lot of it wasn't like one thing or one person. It's certainly possible he could have picked some things up from other kids at school too. But also like reflecting on myself, you know, I even though I, I try really hard to have beliefs and actions that 
challenge racism and other stereotypes. Um, I have been living in this environment all my life too, and I've absorbed things and these stereotypes live inside me. So I can't guarantee that they're not coming out of me in some subtle ways that my child has picked up. So Mm -hmm. one time where I realized I had done that is most of the ways we move at that time, especially he's, he's in a public school that's majority black now. So it's a little different. He's seven now, but at the time when he was four, most of the places we went were majority white. Oh, and I would say like overwhelmingly white. One of the few places we didn't was when we went to the grocery store and there had been a mugging at our grocery store a couple of months ago before this happened. And so I started to feel really anxious about like getting in and out of the car Mm -hmm. and he was four. So like, you know, getting your four-year-old into the car, they're not always interested in that. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately. Right. Sometimes they want to play around or like his favorite thing was to jump from the car seat before I strapped him into the back and run around Mm. the back of the car. And so I started saying to him things about like, it's not safe for us to hang out here in the parking lot. You need to get in the car. Mm -hmm. Um, And meanwhile, like a lot of the people that are walking around in the parking lot are black and that's not something he's used to in other places Mm. we went. And so like, I realized after doing this for a couple of months that I was, for one thing, I realized like my own stereotype because there's another story we went to across town that's a majority white area. There had also been someone that was in the news that was mugged at that location, but I never freaked out when I went there. Mm. I never talked to him about like, it's not safe. We need to get in the car. So I realized my own stereotypes were at work, but also like I was just being just, yeah, that I was putting some stereotypes into his head too. And then I needed to stop doing mm-hmm. that. So yeah, I think kids absorb and reflect so much more than we might realize from a lot of different senses. In this conversation, even though we're talking about social justice, like I'm well aware that most parents don't necessarily want to raise social activists per se as uh, just raising kids that are empathic and respectful of others and basically to just make them more aware of the reality and what's going on and make them more conscious. Yeah. And I I think one of the important ways we can do that and children are curious, so it's not like you're ever going to eliminate um, those kinds of like staring questions completely from happening. But I think one of the things we can do is normalize that there are many different um, skin tones, many different languages, different physical abilities, different relationships that people have in terms of that. We can, we can do that by regularly bringing stories and toys and games and people into our children's lives so that it's not, it doesn't feel like, oh, oh, this is so completely different than anything I've ever experienced. So um, one of the things that I knew when Daniel was still fairly young was I, um, I, th- I think it might have started with him saying there, there was this game at school where people were getting married to each other. And he said something about like a boy can't marry a boy. And what was really kind of hilarious about this is our next door neighbors who he's great friends with because they're they're both like sort of like children and 50 year olds bodies because they're they're great at playing Um, I'm not always the greatest mom at at play but (laughs) 
um, they love to play. They're a married gay couple. And so I said their names and I was like, they're married to each other. And I'm not sure if he just thought they were like roommates or if he just never thought about it. But I realized like we need to talk about this more and just make it more of like an everyday part of our reality. And so I started looking at more of our books. And there's this one book I love called The Barefoot Book of Children, which is really just about ways children live. What I love about it is there's all these different kinds of people just woven into the story. There's some places where it's commented on and others where they're just there. And so like we, I would notice in books like that, like, look, this family has two moms. This family has a mom and a dad. This one just has a mom. When he was a little bit older, we read a great book called I Am Jazz, which is about a transgender girl. And it's aimed for like, I would say probably ages four to seven. And so we talked about how some people, when they're born, adults might look at them and say, well, you're a boy or you're a girl. But mm-hmm. inside that child feels differently. They feel mm-hmm. Like that, that label doesn't fit them. And so he was really accepting of that. And now I don't, we've talked about it more than once. I don't feel anxious that if he meets someone who's transgender, that it's going to like freak him out because Mm -hmm. it's just been part of his world that this is one possibility um, of how people will express themselves. So would you say to parents using books, that's one of the easiest and best ways to start talking about it? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think we don't want to stop with books, but I think as an entry point, that's often where I start. I think books can be great because sometimes like your child might say something and it's subtle enough that you think, I'd like to have more of a conversation about this, but I don't want them to feel shame about what they just said. And so like waiting a couple of days, going to the library and finding a book that fits with that topic, and then you can talk about it in a little bit more removed way mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, can help. But I, I think it's also important and we I'm, we all live in different places and some of them are more diverse than others. So this can be easier or harder. But thinking about like where we spend our time, you know, which playgrounds do we go to? What festivals do we attend? Does your child have the opportunity to ever meet people of different religions? Those kind of things, because it has a greater impact when it's a real part of our child's world. For me, as our son got older, I realized that even though we talked a lot about race through the books we read, through talking about current events. So my family is it's my husband and I, and then uh, um, my adult stepson who's in college, and then our seven-year-old. And so sometimes um, our seven-year-old overhears conversations between the three adults that mm-hmm. maybe other kids wouldn't hear. We're sort of, sometimes we can be a little bit of a grown-up-centric household <laughs> at certain times. And he's a really curious kid, so he'll just ask us what we mean when we're talking about things. One of the things that parents have a difficulty with is what to say. Like you can read books, but once they start asking questions, how direct or honest can you give us an example of what a parent could say to a child? Yeah. So I think being concrete is really good. One of the types of books that I actually avoid or I don't usually use a lot of books that have animals in them because the metaphors, we think they translate well for children, but a lot of times they don't and there's actually mm. some research to back that up oh so, wow I, mean, I didn't like, know that animal books are fun but if you're trying mm-hmm. to teach your child not to bully or pick pick ones with human characters especially the younger your child is rather than animal characters so I, I think one of the things is important with when children ask questions is to figure out like what are they really asking because sometimes they're not asking 
as an in-depth of a question as we think they are. So I'll use an example from the summer I taught and developed the curriculum um, for a peace camp at a church. And first day we talked about, so each day had a theme about I have love for. And the first day was I have love for my body. And so we were talking about gender stereotypes, but also LGBT issues and particularly around being transgender. And so each day I had a kid activist of the day that I told the kids about. Since you went to the peace camp as a topic, let's talk about that so our listeners understand what it is. What is Peace Camps for Kids? You are one of the lead teachers for that in your area? So it's a, it's a small um, church in our city that does a lot of social justice work. So like we, we live in a heavily Christian area where a lot of churches offer these summer vacation Bible schools that are centered around Bible stories and they're fun and activities to do. Um, but the church wanted to, even though it's a Christian church, they said, we really want to do a different kind of camp. For one thing, they wanted to make it open to people of any background, whether they were Christian, a different faith, or, um, you know, atheist or agnostic. They wanted all those families to be able to come and feel welcome and be part of the camp. I should know the tagline for our camp, but I... <laughs> I think it's something like putting love into action. You know, if we want to share our love with the world, we have to understand issues of justice and peace and helping kids find their own way to have an impact on their world. So each day we explored a different issue um, through this theme of having love. So we had on one day we had love for our bodies. On another day we had love for our neighborhood. And that was a way we talked about some poverty and class issues. Another day we had love for migrants. That was obviously about immigration. I have love for my city was the day we were focused on race because that's always been a very key issue for our city. And then we did a day on the environment where we had love for the earth. And so there were just a lot of like fun, interactive activities, especially with the older children, which is the group I taught, like seven to 11 year olds. We did have some more in-depth, serious discussions, but um, I would say the overall feel of the camp was lighthearted and fun. We knew that like this is not school and we want them to learn, but we also want it to be an enjoyable experience for them. Mm -hmm. So how long do these camps last? Is it a week long thing? It's or... a week long camp. Yeah. Kids are with us for about five hours a day. So like from first thing in the morning through lunch. One of the things that was also fun is we got to bring in different guests from the community and um, have the chance for sometimes it was people who were doing activist work. So we had this community organizer who came in and basically explained to kids through an exercise she did with giving out play money about the power that that we have when we come together as a community to change something versus when we just try to do something by ourselves. So she talked mm -hmm. about like pooling our resources. We also wanted the kids to have a little bit of chance to learn from people of various faiths and what peace looked like in their religion. And so at the end of the day, we always closed with someone coming in from a different faith tradition and talking with the kids. And some of them really got into that, especially on the day we had a teacher friend of mine who's Muslim come in and she brought her prayer rugs and her Quran. And just the fact that it was in a different language and there were things that they could touch, they were really interested in that. So that was another fun part of the camp. I really love this idea. I've never heard of it for, for kids. Like myself, I'm in an interracial relationship. And so I've heard lots of racism comments and I've become much more aware of what I I'm teaching my kids, my two kids, but 
at what age do these camps start for kids? Like how young can they actually participate? So we start at age four. There's some things we do in the morning and at the very end where all the kids are together. So the four through 11 year olds, we do singing. We taught them some fun social justice chants, which that was one of the things that the parents told us was definitely like continuing at home. The kids were teaching them the chants and just saying Mm -hmm. them in the bathtub and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So in that time, we were all together, but most of the day was spent with either the four to the four to six year olds were in one group and the seven to 11 year olds were, were in another group. And I would say the four to six year olds, there was more emphasis on learning about people who were affected by these issues and looking at how it connected to their own lives. So the day, the day where we talked about LGBT issues, the four to six year olds were doing a lot of work on like drawing their families and looking at examples of different families families and seeing how different they could be. The older group, the seven to 11 year olds did some of that too, but we also actually like went through, we wrote, I wrote LGBT on a um, piece of paper. And then we talked about what each of those words actually meant, Um, because you might think that kids know what that means, but they don't necessarily. So it was just really simple definitions, like someone who's a lesbian is a woman who loves another woman. I think I might've used the word attract is attracted to another woman because they were older kids and as kids get older they start to understand like what it means to have a crush on someone Mm -hmm. but just really simple definitions like that the depending on the age of the kids they definitely experienced in a different way and I would say even one example I saw with the older group in the age differences and how they might experience things differently is we were talking about poverty and we were talking about what it means to make a living wage. And the custodians at the major university in our city had been in the news because they are not paid a living wage and they wanted to. And so we were trying to break down what this meant for the kids. And so we, I had the kids in small groups. Some of the older kids were helping us read parts of an article that the, these custodians had written and they wanted to be paid $15 an hour. And I said to the kids, I think they were making around 10 or $11 an hour. And so I said to the kids, does that sound like a lot of money? And the seven and eight year olds were like nodding their heads. Yes. Including my own kid. And I think he was probably imagining like how many Pokemon cards, you know, (laughs) with that amount of money. And then one of the 11 year olds like sat forward in his seat all of a sudden. He he had been pretty reserved as one of the older kids. He was definitely, there was a little bit of, I'm a little too cool for this camp. Everyone's <laughs> still well, but he sat forward and he said, no, I don't, I don't think so. And I said, I mow lawns like on the weekends and I charge people, he said $25 a lawn. And he goes, and I can do it really fast. I can do it in like 20 minutes. So I don't think that's a lot of money because, you know, they're adults and I'm just a kid and I'm, I'm making $25 to mow a lawn. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that made it possible for us to get into a discussion about like what do grownups do with their money and what do they have to pay, you know, what needs do they have to pay for before wants. So I really like working with multiple ages because the older kids can kind of help the younger kids see things in a different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love this. And I'm sure this would also be good for teachers. And I saw on your website that you have, you are giving sample of curriculums for if someone wants to start their own peace camp. Yeah. So yeah. if, if people go to my website, which is the barefootmommy.com and then just put forward slash activities. So the barefootmommy.com forward slash activities, I've got four of the, they're all like arts-based activities that we did with the kids that you can download and they can definitely be used in a classroom. Most of them, though, are also things you could probably do at home. I think at least 
three of them. There's four activities you could adapt pretty easily to do at home just with like one or two kids. I know I like when my child's off from school for an extended period of time. I like to have a few things in my back pocket we can do in case he gets bored. And Mm -hmm. I think some of these would definitely fit with that, but it's certainly geared for the classroom. Mm -hmm. I want to mention something you wrote in one of your emails. You said that we believe that kids were capable of having brave conversations while also having lots of fun for these peace camps. And I think this is really important because most of us that are not talking to our kids about these issues is because we think they're too young or they're too difficult or we want their world to be beautiful and not give them all the maybe the difficulties that are going on the world right now because we said they're so young they should enjoy their childhood so talk more about that like based on these camps what have you seen these kids are they happy to talk about it are they ready or do they want to know more like what are their feedback yeah so I know because I'm since it was the first year we'd done this camp I knew a lot of the people like outside of camp setting who enrolled their kids and there was more than one family that said my kid said this was like their favorite camp that they did all summer oh wow. so obviously these children are not getting so bummed out and depressed that they <laughs> <laughs> wish that they hadn't gone um I think the other thing about those conversations about innocence is to remember that not all children get to opt out of having these conversations because their lives are directly affected by some of the issues that we're talking about. You know, a child who's in an immigrant family, especially if they are undocumented, they don't get to avoid having these conversations about Mm -hmm. people being deported because someone they know that might be happening to them. One of the things is that we can do sometimes is think we'll just we'll just keep putting out these conversations and then we can have them when kids are older. But if we've presented the world as this fair place where everyone is treated equally, then it comes to kids as a real shock when they're teenagers or in high school or some people don't even want to do it then. People find out when they're in college that there are all these injustices. A lot of different negative reactions can come from that, from feeling betrayed that no one told me the truth to to not believing what you're being told because it bumps up against everything you've been taught, you know, in your first 13 years of life. Um, so I think it's while we don't want to overwhelm kids, it's not the only thing we want to talk with them about. It's important to start the conversation. And the other thing that I've seen really helps kids is when we talk about not just the problem, but what people are doing about it, because that gives them an idea that whether or not they see themselves going on to be an activist, because some kids do and some kids don't, it lets them know that that is a possibility and that there are positive things we can do to address these problems. We don't just have to be sad about them, but we can ask what what we can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know when um, I give like money to UNICEF and had like these two university kids to come to our door and afterwards my son was like, what is this? Why? Why aren't some kids not eating? And so we had the conversation, but I tried to be mindful of what I'm saying and what I'm telling him about different things. So Yeah, because they repeat everything too, so. Yes. (laughs) But are there topics that are not appropriate to discuss, let's say, with preschool kids? One of the things with preschool kids is they have trouble telling the difference between like the long ago past and yesterday. Mm -hmm. Um, You've probably experienced your child saying that something happened yesterday that was three years ago or vice versa. (laughs) 
Um, so when it comes to teaching them about history, so I'll, I'll give the example of slavery. So I did when our son was younger, we had mentioned slavery a couple of times, but we didn't go into any kind of depth about it because I wasn't sure if he'd be able to know the difference between whether this is something that was happening right now to black people in our community. So I think historical conversations, a lot of times you, it's better to wait till I would say kids are around six, because that's when they start to be able to be rooted into like what the difference between the present and the past. I think also conversations about violence, you, you need to tread lightly. And the good thing about doing this at home is that parents have a pretty good feel for what your individual child is like. I have a very sensitive child who's really easily scared. Mm-hmm. For example, we've talked about, we have talked about the Black Lives Matter movement. And there's a, a great book that we have um, called Something Happened in Our Town that's about a police shooting. So we've talked about that, but I would not go into any sort of detail. I would not let him watch news coverage that could include him actually seeing people being hurt. He is aware of the justice issue, which is the important thing, but the level of detail would be scary to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that's something we do on an occasional basis. We do not talk about that like all the time. So I think being mindful of the level of, of detail that you would go into that changes, you know, by what age your child is and, and also by their personality. Mm-hmm. So what can some parents do to practice social justice with their kids? Like, give us a few examples. I think one thing is thinking about what kind of explanations that we give kids when they ask us questions. So I just actually um, finished a blog post about um, talking to kids about homelessness. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things I've noticed is that we tend to go down to the really individual level when kids ask like, well, why is someone homeless? And so we might talk about like, well, they might have a mental illness or they might be addicted or, you know, they just don't have a place to stay. And what we leave out in that conversation is the main reason that we have homelessness is because of a lack of affordable housing. Mm. And so a different way to have that conversation is to say, you know, it's really expensive to have an apartment to live in. It costs a lot of money and people might work at jobs where they don't get paid enough money to be able to afford an apartment, or it might be that they had a job and they lost it. And if you don't have a job, there's not a lot of options for places, safe places for people to live. Like in my own city, there's actually, this is so pretty shocking to me, there's there is no free shelter in our city. So you have to pay even mm. to stay at homeless shelters. Oh, wow. Um, yes. <laughs> so I think thinking about like, when we talk to kids, how do we move, take more of a bird's eye view of what a problem is instead of just defaulting to why, what might be going on with that individual person. Because to go back to homelessness, you know, there are a lot of homeless people who are mentally ill or have addiction, but there's research that suggests that comes as much from the experience of becoming homeless as it caused people's homelessness. Mm. That's so a good that, example. That's yeah. a good example. Yeah. Um, so I think that's that's one example is thinking about like what kind of explanations we give kids. Um, another, I think, is sharing with kids what our values are and how we're practicing them. So there have been times where I've wanted to participate like in a rally or a vigil or on a justice cause. And I either thought that it would be too much for my kid or just that he would like make it a miserable experience for me because he didn't want to go mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and whine the whole time. And so in, when that's the case, I make sure to talk to him about where I'm going and why I'm going there and and just like a, a couple of sentences about what 
why people are gathering together and what they're concerned about and what what change they want to see happen. I'll sometimes too talk about organizations, social justice organizations that we give to and what they do, because of course he knows that you can help people by giving them things directly because we've done that. But I think it's also good for him to think about, again, those like longer term solutions and that one way we can be part of those is sharing what we have with groups that are helping create justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I, I think another place I, I know I've like talked about this probably 10 times already in the interview, <laughs> but I, I really think that looking at the stories that we read, um, making sure that they're ones that like challenge stereotypes and help kids look at the bigger justice issues. And I have tons of lists on my blog that help people find those books. Those can start conversations that sometimes you'll see what your child is really interested in. Mm -hmm. And you may decide to do something new based on what they care about. So for a while, my kid went through like a heavy environmental phase where he was really concerned about that climate change and other issues like that. It's not usually like my first focus, Mm -hmm. but for a while we, we did more around that because I could tell that it was important to him. So I think following your child's interest and then looking for ways that you might be able to plug into a justice cause. So what do you do specifically with your son to have him participate? What are some things you have done with him? So one thing that sometimes he's, so it just kind of depends, but we've also talked a lot about immigration. Mm -hmm. And the way that I talked to him about that is the first book we read is a book called Mama's Nightingale. And it's about a little girl. It's a Haitian family and her mother. I think her father has become a citizen already, but her mother is undocumented and she ends up in immigration detention the mom does and so we talked about how these are there are these papers that you have to have to be able to legally be in the country and some people don't have the right papers and that the papers are really hard to get that's another thing that I wanted him to understand it's not easy to get those papers but of course that every family wants to be together and it's not right for a mommy or daddy not to be able to be with their kids because they don't have the right papers so we had talked about that and we'd read the book And he asked to read it like, I don't know, five nights in a row, which is always a sign to me that something's really caught his attention and his mind and his heart. I was writing letters to our senator about senators about immigration reform. And I asked him, would he like to like draw a picture and write a sentence at the end? And so we've done that. Um, There have been times where he has gone to to us with activist type events. If there are ones that like there was one that was right next to a playground. And so part of the time he stood and listened and part of the time he went and played. (laughs) And and there are a bunch of other kids there, too. So it depends on if I think there will be other children there because I don't want to. And then the other thing that I I feel like is just I've noticed, especially now that he's seven, that he's speaking up more a lot in in group settings with other kids and like explain kind of explaining issues to them. He's doing a lot of his own thinking and he's helping influence the kids around them, him to help Mm -hmm. them think about things in a new way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it helps his maybe confidence too. And let's talk a bit about a different subject that you have on your website, uh, microaggressions and kids, because this is like something that goes undetected very often because they're subtle. And often we don't realize even as adults that we're doing it (laughs) until we see the other person's reaction and the impact it can have on others. So can you share what are some examples of microaggressions um, that kids can have towards other kids that are different or 
um, related to social justice issues? Yeah. So, I mean, I've definitely heard of people, parents who have a spouse who's their same gender and their kid being told at school by another child, like, you can't have two mommies or you can't have two daddies. Um, So I think that's one example. Another one I think that's really common is making fun of or laughing at people's names that come from a culture that's not their own or hearing someone speak another language. Another example I read about, I think she was a kindergarten teacher was talking about was she works really hard to have kind of an anti-bias guided classroom. She had a very diverse classroom and she had invited the children to bring in different songs that they liked. And they might have even been birthday songs. I can't remember. But anyway, there was a child who I think might have been Chinese and had brought in a song and another child started laughing. And so that sounds really funny, which she was really good about taking a minute to stop and ask the the child who had brought in the song, well, how do you feel right now? And they said that they were feeling sad and they, she gave them a few minutes to um, talk about how this child was feeling. And then she said, let's listen to the song again. This is a, the song is really special to that. The kids had sort of a chance to have a do over where the child who had brought the song felt listened to and respected and the other kids had a chance to show their respect by by listening instead of laughing Mm, that's good yeah you wrote also that related to this too that we have to teach kids that the impact of their words and actions matters more than their intentions because often they don't even realize it like they might just say (laughs) what comes to their mind and not think about okay this might hurt the other person because they are not like me so they might take it the wrong way but a lot of this can often happen in school settings because that when you get a lot of kids together. How much should teachers intervene? Yeah, I think it's really (laughs) important for teachers to intervene. And and sometimes this stuff happens too as parents, like when our kids are having play dates or whatever, it might be our own child or the other child we hear say something. I think um, when it comes to issues of, of bias, it's really important to intervene because our kids are getting those subtle messages from our culture that it's okay to discriminate and it, we have to be explicit that it's not. I think what's important is to do that, to intervene in a way that isn't about shaming. Like I know that a lot of times my first instinct when I witness my kid doing something or another kid doing something is to come down hard and be like, mm-hmm. why would you do that? That's that's terrible. Why did you say that? And, and yeah. we have this idea that we have to do it in that way or else our kid won't realize it's wrong. Mm-hmm. But when we do that, what, what our kid learns is that was really bad. I'm not sure why it was bad, but I know I better not let the teacher or my mom or whoever see me do that again. And mm-hmm. then the, the kid may continue the behavior or the kind of remarks like in private with other kids. Mm-hmm. So, And that's even um, worse. Yeah. 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 So I think it's really important to talk about you said something that I'm, I'm worried that maybe you don't understand what this word means or an, another example that I learned a lot. And this is a little bit more common with older children, but it's really common for like middle school age kids to joke about things that are not racist being racist. So like a kid who I remember this happening to me, like I was in art class and I asked one of my classmates, I said, hey, can you hand me that 
piece of black construction paper. And he was like, that's racist. Mm. Um, and so this, this teacher was saying on her blog that it's really important to, to intervene because it shows kids like joking about things that aren't racism. It makes it like racism is funny, which it's not. And mm-hmm. we want to make sure kids can recognize what is and is not racism. And so her suggestion was just to be like, Hey, um, the comment you just made, I'm, I'm concerned that maybe you don't know what racism is. So can we talk about that? And then after talking about like what it actually is to let people know that like, if we don't want to be hurtful it, in, in this situation, it's most likely a white child who said that if we don't want to be hurtful to people of color, we shouldn't joke about racism because it is a real problem that does actually hurt people. So we don't want to call things that aren't racism. We don't want to call them that. So I think have those conversations in a calm way and in a way that our goal is for kids to learn. And the younger a child is to remember that one conversation is not always going to do it. You may have to have that conversation many times, just like I had to Mm -hmm. talk to my kid many times about I was when he was younger, like just helping him become an empathetic person. It felt like it would take forever for him to think about someone else's feelings, period, even like not having to do with social justice. Most things, it takes our kids a lot of tries to learn. And again, that's why that intervention is important, because each time we intervene, it builds on their learning and the likelihood that they'll absorb what we're trying to teach Mm -hmm. them. So basically not just saying, no, stop that, but asking your child, why did you say that? So then they kind of understand why and if it was okay or not. And so it's all about understanding. Yeah. A young child might not be able to answer the why question. They may not know why they said something, but to find out more about like what was happening in that situation, what led up to what you said, you know, what happened before and after. Another teacher taught me, especially with young kids, like preschool age kids, is it sometimes is hard for them to imagine how someone else would feel. And so we can kind of model that for them by saying, like if someone were making fun of your name, because you think it sounds like a funny name, which usually that it's a marker of like a name from ethnicity that's different than yours to say like I think I would feel if someone made fun of my name I think I would feel sad because my name is so special to me and I know that my name is beautiful and I want other people to think that too Mm. Um, and just like model that wondering aloud because Mm -hmm. it is hard for young kids to empathize with others so we can kind of model that thinking through some of that for them. Mm-hmm. And with enough repetition, they'll eventually they'll hear your voice kind of saying those things again. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about something you mentioned already, but I want to get uh, more specific about it, gender identity, because even for me, it can be confusing on what is the description, because I feel like it's changed in the last decades, how you define it. And I want to read exactly what you had on your website, which I thought said it clearly, basically said the only meaningful way to determine gender is through personal gender identity, which is an individual's internal sense of gender and not just its physical appearance. So I thought that was very clear, simple. I mean, I had never thought of it this way. For me, it was, well, traditionally, it was like physically your boy or your girl, and that's it. But this, can you talk a bit more about this? Yeah, I mean, I I think one of the ways I've explained it to my son before is the, you know, the person who can tell us what their gender is, is that person. And if Mm -hmm. they tell us, I feel like a boy, or I feel like a girl, 
or we've also talked about what it means to be non-binary. He might not recognize that word, but he knows that there are some people that feel like boy or girl does not adequately describe them. We've talked about like they might feel like they're both. They might feel like neither. Like I said, I don't think he could come up with the word non-binary, but he knows that that's a thing. And that we've talked about they, them. That some people, instead of wanting to be referred to as he or she, they want to be referred to as they. Um, That's one of the things we were able to talk about at camp really easily because one of our volunteers actually uses they, them pronouns. Um, And so that person was able to talk with the kids about it. And I I think it's important, like I I felt even just a couple of years ago, very ignorant about gender. And I realized like, I do not know a lot of what people are talking about, you know, like on social media and things like that. And so I realized like, I, I need to do some education for myself. So one of the resources I would mention is um, there's a great organization called the Trevor Project. And it's geared towards uh, mostly to teens for LGBT teens. And it's a lot of their focus is on suicide prevention because suicide rates are much higher among LGBT youth. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, they have a great resources section, including one that kind of breaks down what's the difference between gender and sexual orientation, um, because those are two different things. And just some really helpful resources that I could be in better conversation with kids too, Mm -hmm. and, and be more respectful of the people around me. Mm-hmm. as well. For example, when we meet someone, basically it's up to them to tell us how they want to be referred to. What should we say, generally speaking, like when we meet someone, because without offending anyone. I mean, from what I've understood with talking, talking with people who are transgender or who are non-binary, which is again, that people, people who might use they, them pronouns, it can be tricky because not, especially if you're just meeting someone for the first time, depending on what the setting is, that person may or may not feel safe and comfortable sharing that Mm -hmm. information with you. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, one of the things I've seen more people doing in groups, which I think is good, is on name tags. If you're in a group situation, you can write your own pronouns down Mm -hmm. underneath. Or I've been on like online group seminars where we've done that too. I look very feminine. And so people just automatically assume that I'm she, her, but going ahead and stating it gives people more room if they want to use a pronoun that might not be expected for them. When it comes to kids, I think it's kind of a balance of teaching them to be respectful of how the other person wants to be treated and, and understood. But also like, especially when you're just first meeting someone, children can be really puzzled when they can't figure out someone's gender. Mm -hmm. Um, And so sometimes, you know, what we need to just say is like, well, does it really matter? Find out what their name is, ask them their name and you can play with them. You know, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what their gender is, whether Mm -hmm. you can have a good time playing with them. So, because especially when you're talking directly to a person and not about them, just you is enough to use. Yes. Um, Yes. So I think it really depends on the situation. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk about one last subject. Immigration, because uh, I mean, this is a big one these days uh, for many reasons. I mean, through the peace camps and books, you mentioned also toys. What are specific ways we can talk to them more about immigration? I think one thing is to to talk to kids about when you first meet someone and you're getting to know them, what makes them feel comfortable? What makes them feel this is someone I want to be friendly with? This is someone who I will enjoy playing with? 
There's another thing you talked about on your your site. You talked about two feet of service activity. What is that and why is it important? Yeah, so a long time ago, there was a Catholic monk who taught me this idea. And I'm not sure if it came from Catholicism or somewhere else, but it's the idea of, he called it two feet of Christian service, um, although I think it applies just as well to a secular situation, but that that basically we need direct service, charitable kinds of things, you know, donating food, giving, you know, homeless shelters, things that meet people's day-to-day needs, because people have needs that should be met right now. We, we can't just say to someone, oh, well, I'm, I'm working on the root causes of this problem and long-term injustice. I'm trying to get laws changed, so I can't help you with mm-hmm. the fact that you need food for your family right now. So mm-hmm. that's the one foot is service, or some people would say charity. And, and then the other foot is social justice, so working on the root causes. So that can be everything from advocacy around getting laws changed. It can mean pushing businesses and corporations to change their policies, but those longer-term things and that if we want to have an impact on the world, we have to think about, are we using both of our feet? Are we only using one of them? So I think thinking about that, like at an individual level, but also a community level, like is our, is our community doing both of those things well? Mm -hmm. Around Christmas time, you see a lot of like food drives. And I know at my grocery stores, you have the option of paying $10 and you have already these paper bags filled with different canned foods and for families that need it or individuals that need it. I think um, anytime, even if it's not something our child's like directly doing or um, I know with our, we just started giving our son an allowance. And so we set that he gets to keep 80% of that. And he has this little piggy bank that separates it out. And 10% is for him to give to others. And 10% is to save for like big things in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he carries his give money around. Like sometimes we'll give that directly to a homeless person because that's something that really like stirs his heart. Also talk to him about different groups he might be able to give that to. And just like making him aware of what organizations that we support, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. That's a good idea. That's a really good idea. Um, do you give money to homeless people on the street? I do give sometimes. It a lot of times it actually depends on if I have cash, which I don't always. Um, and sometimes it's like if I'm in a hurry or not. But um, I feel like it's important to give when you give to release that money and not be thinking or judging about what the person might do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also had times where I've like headed into the grocery store. And so um, I'll ask someone, is there something that you want me to get for you? Because all I have is my credit card. I don't have any cash, but I could pick up, you know, Mm. something to eat for you. You could do the same thing with a fast restaurant. But yeah, but Mm -hmm. I do think it's important to give and give without judgment. So if if you don't feel comfortable giving, that's okay. But like, if you are going to give, then you got to you got to release it and not worry about what they're going to do with it or worry if you see them on a different day. (laughs) Once you're homeless, it's really hard to dig your way out of that unless you have Mm -hmm. um, some supports to, Mm -hmm. to get out of that situation. So I don't necessarily, if I see the same person, I don't necessarily think like, oh, they took advantage of me and just recognize that like, this is a long-term problem. And it's not surprising that me giving them $2 didn't make it possible for them to move into housing. If that makes makes sense. Mm -hmm. What are some topics that you're currently focusing on raising more awareness for? 
So I I just put out last month a book for white parents that's about um, raising anti-racist kids. And mm-hmm. so a lot of my work in writing right now is specifically around race. And I really wanted to focus on what I know. And so it, it is specific to white children. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that in the new year I realize is a real gap for me is I really don't know much about disabilities and mm. disability rights. Something that a term that people use called ableism to indicate like the the prejudice that we have against disabled people, like assuming that they're incompetent, um, mm-hmm. assuming they can't make decisions for themselves about how they should live. We've talked a little bit about it as a family, but not enough. And so that's something I definitely want to um, focus more in the coming year in creating some resources around that. First, I need to do more to educate myself. Definite area where I'm, I feel like I'm being pushed to, to learn more. And the school that my son is attending now has like a higher than average number of children with special education plans. He's meeting kids now of with disabilities more often than he ever has before. And I want him to be able to be a good and respectful friend to his class. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are you hoping will change in the future, maybe related? Um, especially living in the United States. Um, and I live in the Southern United States. So racism is pretty much always the very first thing that mm-hmm. I think about. I, I just think there is... Um, so much work that we as parents can do to help our children um, and our families be the change that we want to see in the world so that all people can be free and all people can thrive. I really think that that can't happen if we don't start by talking with our kids honestly about race and racism. The talk by itself isn't enough, but we have to start there. And so that's like one of my most cherished hopes for more parents to be able to be willing to start these conversations. Mm-hmm. So where can mothers, parents, listeners today read more about you, all your blog posts and get your ebook that you talked about? Yeah. So my blog is The Barefoot Mommy. Um, just be sure to put the the there at the beginning, the barefoot mommy. And I've got um, my menu is broken down by topic. So you can if you're mostly wanting to dive into like the book list, you can do that. I've got them sorted by categories. Um, I have a big archive of articles on race and kids. So that's under, there's another tab that says social justice. Um, so you can dive in there. And the, if people are interested in the ebook, there's a pop-up banner right now that just says my book, Raising Anti-Racist Kids, is available. If you click on that, it'll take you to a, a page that's got lots of detail about what's inside the book and what it can help you do. So you can figure out if it's right for your family. Mm-hmm. Can we find you on social media or just on your website right now? Yeah, so I'm also on Facebook. And that one, probably the easiest thing to do would be because I, I, I'm trying to think I changed the name. If you if you Google the Barefoot Mommy, it'll come up with my name, Rebecca Geenap, the Barefoot Mommy. And I'm pretty active on Pinterest. But so but you can find me on, on Facebook and on Pinterest. Perfect. And I also want to mention that we'll linked with this episode, we'll have a bonus that you did for this episode. So four creative activities that teach kids about social justice that will be included 
for all the listeners. Uh, before I ask you one final question, I just want to thank you, Rebecca, for being on the podcast today and talking about these topics. So the last question I ask everyone that comes on the podcast, we all know that being a mother parent is a roller coaster of emotions and experiences, keeping motherhood inspired. What one thing have you found that kept you inspired and energized throughout your mom journey? Yeah. Um, so I think at the moment, it's, it's been a lot of different things in a lot of different places. Um, I'm really enjoying being part of this Facebook group called Raising Children Unfundamentalist. And so Cindy Wong Brandt, who we mentioned at the very beginning of the episode, when we were talking about treating our kids with justice, she she runs that group. But it's full of parents who are just in, in so many different ways um, doing like the tricky work of raising conscious and empathetic and confident kids. So just reading in there, like sometimes what's exciting is seeing what people are doing and being inspired by that. Sometimes it's just hearing from other parents, like it's hard and I made a mistake and, <laughs> and I'm going to mm -hmm. learn from the mistake I made and remembering to just kind of take it one step at a time. And there's nobody who is doing this all perfectly. And that's not the goal. And that's not the point of motherhood to try to mm -hmm. do it perfectly. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, right now, that's one thing that's definitely keeping me grounded and inspired. Thank you for listening to another episode of Citrus Love, Keeping Motherhood Inspired podcast. If you think someone would enjoy to listen to this episode, please share it with them. You can share the link wherever you're listening or go to our website at www.citruslove.com slash episode and the number where you will find the episode as well as all the information about the guests or the specific episode. The best way to get our podcast ranked is by leaving me a review wherever you're listening. Two, three, four, five, six stars. Whatever you feel reflect podcast, this will not only let me know what needs to be improved as well as what you particularly love. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll get the next episode. And thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye, guys. <laughs>